G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. We've been talking about Noah's Ark, amongst other things. Yeah, that's right, Chris. We're going to spend a bit more time on that today because I think we made our point about the use of the flood motif as descriptive of a massive battle that took place between the destroyers sent by God and the giants. And while these episodes have been going to air recently, I've been receiving feedback from people wondering how to reconcile the idea of the two narratives that are going on here. Are we talking about a literal flood or a fictional flood? Are we talking about either a battle or a flood, or is it both? It's always, uh, it's always good to get some clarity in our interpretation. I think there is a literary sense in which both of these things are being talked about at the same time, but that's a literary construction, not a historical one. That doesn't mean that either the flood or this battle that I've been describing isn't real or historical. What it does mean is that two real events, probably separated by some considerable expanse of time, are being talked about at once. The flood provides the literary framework in which this battle is being described. As I mentioned before, the actual flood of real water that we talk about as the Great Flood that submerged a significant portion of the Mesopotamian lowlands occurred somewhere around 5500 BC. That's what we get from geological evidence. Of course, you'll have guys like Ken Ham and Kent Hovind saying that the flood was only 4,000 years ago, but they need to say that because they're dispensationalist and the way they reckon it, there's 2,000 years before the flood, 2,000 years after the flood when Jesus comes, 2,000 years since Jesus, and then the Millennial Kingdom will begin uh, 24 years ago. Wait, no, might be slightly off there. Next year for sure. Maybe the year after. Uh, sorry, I digress. But that's a historical event with water and, and a boat and a man keeping animals alive. It's not a story about divine powers coming to earth to destroy the oppression of the giants and save humanity from extinction in a massive war. Fair enough. I reckon that makes sense when you think about it. But the Bible isn't talking about the historical event of the flood. Remember last time I was talking about how that story doesn't hold theological value for us. It doesn't tell us about who God is and our place in his world. It's using a story about that event to describe this war that led to the eradication of the giants in the days of Noah. And that's where we're finding the theological value that later biblical authors will pick up on. And you might say, well, hang on, doesn't that put Noah in two stories, possibly thousands of years apart? How does that work? Yeah, Tim, how does that work? Well, before we go there, I've got another question to ask you. How is it that Noah has a Hebrew name in a time before there were any Hebrews? Oh, wow. Yeah. You think that's air you're breathing, Neil? So logically, the story we are reading is a Jewish story written after the event, and the names of the characters in the story are Jewish names, even though the story isn't about Jewish people, right? That's right, and that's probably the biggest giveaway that this is the case. It should be pretty clear to us that we're reading a Jewish story that basically takes two historical events and weaves them together in a single narrative. And it's doing that for theological reasons. It's not doing that for the purposes of documenting history. This is why the biblical flood story looks like it borrows so many elements from a whole host of different traditions. It does. It's all about presenting a narrative that enables another story to be told in the background. And if any of that isn't really clear, then it might be worth going back to some of our earlier episodes where we talked about flood stories from the ancient Near East. And just reflecting on the fact that there are so many common elements from various flood traditions, but not a single one of them lines up with the biblical story from beginning to end. Okay, so that being the case, shouldn't we be looking for a historical battle that occurred, which we could point to as the event behind the flood story as told in the Bible? A historical battle 
that pits the rebellious sons of God and their hybrid offspring against the destroying angels sent by God to eradicate them? That's a good question. Some people have suggested the Trojan War, as recorded by the Greek poets, and that'd be cool, except that we know that most of the stories of the Trojan War are actually the last remnants of earlier ancient Near Eastern traditions. What we get when we read the Trojan War stories is the Greek version of a kind of distillation of a lot of much earlier tradition from ancient Assyria and Lower Mesopotamia, which probably came to the Greeks by the way of the Hittites. That's why you hear people say that the Greek civilization was not only the first Western civilization, but the last of the ancient Near East. And the Greek use of that mythology is similar in a sense to what we see here in scripture, albeit kind of reversed, because they're talking about a real historical war and infusing it with the mythology of the gods in order to present their pagan theological messaging about the war and about their own people as a nation to their audience. So a conflated titanomachy slash gigantomachy might be our best shot outside of scripture. It's some kind of a parallel. Uh, sorry, what? Oh, yeah, that terminology might not be familiar to everybody. Uh, in Greek mythology, the titanomachy is the story of a war between the titans and the gods. And the gigantomachy is a war between the titans and the giants. Depending on what you're reading, you might see those presented as separate events or as different aspects of the same event. But that's a pagan perspective, not a biblical one, and it doesn't get us any closer to a legitimate historical basis for the battle described in Genesis. And that's clear when we recognize that the Mesopotamian background for the mythology common to the Greek poets and the biblical authors predates our best estimates for both the Trojan War and the earliest history of the Israelite people. And it all takes place in a different part of the world, so they can't be talking about the same thing in physical terms. We are far removed in both time and space from both of those contexts. Okay, so where does that leave us? I don't know if we'll ever be able to point to a single historical event and say that this is the great battle in history that gets referred to as the events of Genesis 6. Again, we're talking about prehistory, and the only way that we know anything about it is because of the traditions that have come down to us since then. That's a whole mess of time and tradition and competing agendas that we may never get to the bottom of. That's right up there with the kind of questions being asked around ancient historical sites, like the original city of Jericho and whatever happened to Gobekli Tepe and other things of that nature. But it doesn't matter. Our aim as students of scripture is to pay attention to the text, not to speculate about the events behind the text. The text is inspired, not the history, because it's the text that communicates the word and the will and the nature of God. True. Anyway, I think that's far enough down that particular rabbit trail and we are way off topic here. So let's pull it in and get back to talking about the ark and in particular more about the animals and other stuff that went on board because that's what we're here for. It sounds like it's going to be interesting. More interesting than epic battles between destroying angels and demigods before the dawn of civilization. Yes, well, I think that there's a, a common thread that runs through both the flood story and the deeper reading about judgment on the giants that you've been explaining to us. To me, what works in both stories is the idea that God is sovereign and he preserves the faithful in the same action while he judges the wicked. And how that works out isn't really the point. I think you're right, Chris. That's a really good insight about what we've been studying. And you're also right when you point out that we need to get back on track. We're going to continue in chapter six, and as we've learned throughout every episode of this podcast, the truth of scripture is always more than meets the eye. Uh, I do love a good Transformers reference, and I guess that means it's time to roll out the last part of Genesis chapter six. I see what you did there. All right, so here's our reading from verse 19. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. 
of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten, and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. I can't believe we are at the end of the chapter. This is pretty exciting. Yeah, this is a really interesting part of the text, even if it isn't specifically about all that crazy supernatural stuff that we've been talking about recently. Because we're going to be reminded here about what's really important, and it's the contents of the ark that are clearly the focus of the narrative. That's evident not just because of the level of detail that goes into describing what goes into the ark, but also because the story itself makes it clear that this is what God is primarily concerned about. Never mind what's going on outside. God's going to take care of that, but what's on the inside is the responsibility of God's appointed representative in Noah. So it's at this point that we start to get controversial. The Hebrew word that gets translated as every or all in the text is kol, and it's a very common word. You will probably hear people insist that it has to mean literally every last thing, like it's a totally exhaustive statement without exception. You'll get this particularly among evangelical fundamentalists because that's how they end up with a global flood, and therein lies the controversy. The problem is that sometimes that word implies an exhaustive totality, and sometimes it doesn't. And that's why I said recently on the podcast when we had a question about the animals on board the ark that the biblical text does not necessitate a global flood. The language is there, but the question is, are we necessarily bound to interpret it in that way? Is that how it's meant to be understood? And there are all kinds of examples where the biblical text clearly doesn't require us to be so woodenly literal about how we understand that terminology. The trouble is that most of us still haven't taken off those 19th century German thinking caps. So let's have a look at a couple of these. The first example comes from the flood story itself, of course. All flesh will die. All of it. Every last thing. No exceptions. All means all. Oh, uh, except for Noah. Except Noah's family except lots and lots of animals. All flesh, except them. Yeah, that doesn't really work, does it? Yeah, let's see another one. Genesis 41, verse 57. Moreover, all the earth came to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Okay, there are a couple of things going on here. We have the word all, and we have the word earth. And your typical fundamentalist will insist that this means the complete and exhaustive totality of all living people on the planet. So in other words, they would have us believe that people came from Alaska to Egypt, and from Sydney to Egypt, and from China to Egypt, and from Hawaii to Egypt, and I could go on. If that's what all the earth means, then you have to stick to it. But you can't. You just can't do that, and it's dishonest to make that claim and then act like you don't have to back it up. So you either take the language literally and scientifically and you end up here with people from Hawaii going to Egypt to get food from Joseph. Or you admit that sometimes the normal use of language employs a reasonable use of hyperbolic expression. It's okay to exaggerate in order to make your point as long as the point you're making isn't about exact figures. That doesn't make God a liar. That's right. And if we've said it once, we've said it a million times, the Bible isn't lying just because the author made a generalization. And of course... The other thing about that passage is it says the whole earth. And you know I have a problem with that phrasing as I keep reminding our listeners it's the whole land and the land is a very specific place to an Israelite. It's not a globe spinning in space. It's where they live, wherever that happens to be at the time. 
And that's another thing to keep in mind as we continue through the flood story. So as I said before, when you see that kind of generalized language, that doesn't mean that God is a liar just because we don't see penguins on the ark with Noah. Mile and wave, boys. No reasonable person is going to use that as an excuse to say that the Bible doesn't mean what it says. We're going to have to keep this in mind as we continue to read the flood story because it's going to come up again and again. So did Noah really have to load pairs of all kinds of animals, or was God going to destroy all flesh? It's the same terminology, so you don't get to pick which one really means all and which one doesn't. Either they both mean exhaustive totality, in which case they're contradictory, or they both are generalizations. We're going to go with generalization because that's the way people naturally think about things and talk about things, isn't it? And we're not going to forget that we had this little discussion as we continue to read through the flood story. So Noah's going to collect pairs of various kinds of animals as they come to him. It's very important that we note the continual stress on male and female. We're coming back to the language of creation here. It's Genesis 1 all over again. We've got birds. We've got beasts. We've got creeping things, male and female. And we talked back in season one about the significance of these animals and the roles that they play in the larger system of order in the world. So first we have the birds. As we're going to see later in the flood story, birds play an important part in determining when it's safe to get out of the boat. They're also necessary for sacrifices and in the cutting of covenant agreements. The flood story doesn't give us much detail on covenant cutting, but if you want to read about the covenant that God makes with Abram, read Genesis 15. Again, just like the creation story, we have the beasts come next. The terminology for beasts here is behamah in the Hebrew, which is frequently translated elsewhere as livestock. But if your translator is pushing for a global flood, you will not get that interpretation presented to you. They're going to leave you with the impression that it's just animals in general, not specific types of animals. This is why you need to read the Hebrew. And then we have the creeping things. This might be the only group of animals that's not safe because of its usefulness to Noah and his family. It's possible that these were preserved because in the ancient world, small creatures, particularly swarming creatures, were thought to be divine functionaries. If they don't do something of benefit to mankind, then what they do must be of benefit to the gods. It's either that or they were just rescued on compassionate grounds because of the destruction of their habitat. Maybe both. What you don't have here are wild beasts. Contrary to your Sunday school colouring books, you don't have lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. No zebras and giraffes and ostriches. Oh dear. No kangaroos, wombats or platypuses, uh, platypi. Oh no. No voles, stoats or badgers. Goodness gracious me. No raccoons, bobcats or squirrels. Dang it. Yeah, all that stuff about the animals from the African savannah exhibit at the zoo is garbage. Noah doesn't need them, and the text doesn't specify them either. There are no wild beasts. So it wouldn't have been that hard to get all the animals to get along on the boat after all. Kind of kills that whole, what about the carnivores argument? Yeah, unless your sheep develop a taste for eating pigeons or lizards, you're probably not going to have a problem. <laughs> and just like in the creation story, we have that similar phrasing, everything according to its kind. Yeah, that's right. It's very reminiscent of creation, and that's really the whole point. This is re-establishing those boundaries again. And this isn't about hybrid animals and genetic engineering. It's teaching the humans that everything flourishes when it stays within the bounds of divinely ordained functionality. And that includes maintaining the distinction between man and beast, male and female, flesh and spirit. What you don't see here is separation between different races of people or any kind of division between the human race, aside from maintaining that male-female distinction. And that's not a boundary based on discrimination. Anyway, I'm not getting to all that here. We already talked about the male-female thing back in Genesis 2. So Noah gets told that all the animals are going to come to him, and the next thing he has to do is prepare food for everyone. Do you think you could prepare food and keep it fresh for a whole year 
for a large number of animals and a whole family. How do you reckon you'd keep animal fodder fresh while you're floating around in a big wet basket and it's raining? I have absolutely no idea. I can't keep a loaf of bread or, or a lettuce fresh for a week, whether it's raining or not. Yeah, this to me is another reason why I think it's much more plausible to consider that the numbers and dates and spans of time in the flood narrative are probably symbolic rather than literal. We've already talked about how the dates were specifically chosen to line up with astronomical phenomena that were observable in the heavens during the period of the exile. It's not a huge leap to suggest that the whole episode of the flood may have occurred over a much shorter span of time. None of the other flood traditions have such a long time. It's usually a week or 40 days at the most, which reminds me that the argument between the rabbis who were talking about the timing of the Pleiades that I mentioned in recent episodes, that's actually reconciled if you assume that the whole thing is said and done in 40 days. And all the uh, discussion about the intervening period there and, and the number of the days in total comes down to a symbolic use. But anyway, it wouldn't be unreasonable to suggest that the narrative here is setting calendar dates for other reasons. So on a slightly different track, I've got a question about why the story tells us about the animals and the food and all that stuff. Because you said earlier that the story about a flood and a family keeping animals on a boat doesn't really hold theological value in and of itself. That being the case, why do we have these details in the story? That is a great question and possibly one of the most important questions to be asking at this point. I mentioned on an earlier episode that one of the polemic features of this text is the way that Noah is constructing sacred space, in contrast to Atrahasis, who was asked to destroy the reed hut, which may have been the temple of his god, in order to build a boat and save himself. And it's that image of sacred space that we need to keep in mind here. We've already talked about the reflections of creation that we've seen with the various animals. When we think about the Garden of Eden, we need to remember that it's full of food. And just like God brought animals to Adam to see what he would name them, he now brings animals to Noah, whose job is to classify them by their kinds and to protect them. I mentioned before that Noah is the new and better version of Adam, and we see that in the function that Noah performs. Noah and his family inhabit this sacred space that Noah has built, and in so doing, they become the image bearers within that space. We have things with wings. We have all kinds of animals. We even have serpents, potentially. The word for creeping things is often used of reptiles. So all the elements are here to furnish this sacred space for the appropriate worship of God. It's literally a microcosm of Eden. And it doesn't just look back on Eden, because this floating sanctuary is also reminiscent of the tabernacle. Remembering, of course, that the tabernacle came along before the period in which the Jews find themselves in exile. So the stories about the tabernacle are reflected here, even though historically the tabernacle would come later than the events of the flood story. And again, the tabernacle comprised three main areas decorated with imagery of all kinds of food, plants and animals, things with wings and reptiles that was carried aloft wherever God wanted it to go. Later, of course, God established a place in which his name would dwell, so it didn't move around. But when you look at the temple, again, you see all kinds of features reminiscent of the tabernacle and Eden and Noah's Ark. These are some interesting connections, but why should we be thinking about Noah's Ark as a kind of religious sanctuary? I think the key thought here is centering all attention on the true worship of Yahweh. There's basically no way that you can survive the flood except by making this your refuge. There is no other means of escape. All the self-determination of the man, as we've been discussing him throughout the course of this podcast series, leads to death. The reason that this flood is talked about in terms that give you the impression of covering the whole world 
is not because all physical land masses have to be submerged, but because the author needs his audience to understand that there is no other way to be saved but by the grace and through the authentic worship of the one true God. And that worship is going to be manifest in obedience. This isn't works-based salvation, it's faithfulness being manifested in obedience that leads to salvation. Noah didn't get saved because he believed in God. He got saved because he did what he was told and he got on the boat. The reason he did what he was told is because he was faithful to God. So, as I always say, there's no separation between faith and works because they have to go together. If you want to talk about grace and how that works in this equation, it's quite simple. God didn't have to save Noah. He chose to. Okay, so what happens when we start talking about this great cosmic battle between destroying angels and the Nephilim and then think about how the Ark functions in that story? How does that work exactly? To be honest, I think it works in the same way. Noah's under divine protection. It would actually be quite poetic to think that God preserves righteous Noah in a basket and carries him out of Mesopotamia, given that later in the prophets we'll see a basket full of sin and iniquity being carried back to Babylon. That's in Zechariah chapter 5. Yeah, it's quite ironic. Uh, Any final thoughts for this episode before we wrap it up? Yeah, this would have been a no-brainer for anyone familiar with the Torah, but for many of us it needs to be pointed out. As we read through the books of the law, we hear this refrain from the people of Israel. Moses reads the law, and then they say, all that you have said we will do, and then they don't do it. So Noah stands in stark contrast to the people of Israel because of his obedience, highlighted in the way that we find it written here. Genesis 6.22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Noah doesn't just say that he'll do what's right. He actually does it. That's what God is looking for from us as well. Amen, brother. Well, that's it. That's the end of uh, the chapter. What are we going to do next week? Well, next week we're going to do our season finale and we'll do a bit of a wrap-up of everything we've touched on this season. After that, we're going to take a bit of a break before we come back with our coverage of Genesis chapter 7 in season 7 of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Sounds great. That's something to look forward to for sure. In the meantime, let's have some Q&A. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible, or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us at the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. I personally receive all your mail, and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. Jason asked in the Raven Creek Paddle Store group on Facebook, anyone know what they used to break through city gates in King David's time? Asking for a friend. Lol, the friend is actually me. (laughs) That's actually a pretty good question, considering the kind of fortifications that we've seen in the excavations at the biblical city of Gath. So it's the dawn of the Iron Age. City gates were usually made of wood, reinforced with metal bars. The simple answer is that you burn them down. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3, And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. And we have another example in Jeremiah 17, verse 27. But if you do not listen to me to keep the Sabbath day holy and not to bear a burden, and enter by the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and shall not be quenched. And then we have it again in Nahum chapter 3, verse 13. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. 
fire has devoured your bars. So that's a few examples, and there's plenty more where that came from. Incidentally, that's another reason why I don't think that the theory of Goliath's height being a reference to the thickness of the walls in the city of Gath holds any water. It doesn't matter how thick your walls are if you can just burn the gates down. So that comparison doesn't make any sense. Anyway, that was an interesting question from Jason, so I'm glad he asked. We actually got another question from Warren, but that was before he listened to the most recent episode of the podcast, and then he sent a follow-up and said, thanks for answering his question. So uh, I guess that's it. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, a quick one is a good one. That's all from us. Make sure you come back next week for the season finale, as Tim said, and we might have a sneak peek at Genesis Chapter 7 while we're at it. Don't forget, you too can send your questions in to be answered on the podcast. Just go to the website, giantanswers.com, and put your question in there, or you can find us on social media. While you're on the website, take the opportunity to grab yourself a copy of the book, Answers to Giant Questions. We'll catch you next time. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. This podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops we'll catch you next time on the answers to giant questions podcast thank you for listening to the answers to giant questions podcast a production of the raven creek social club if you like what you heard today please take a moment to rate or review the show music supplied under copyright by great forsaken greatforsaken.com you can get the book answers to giant questions by tj stedman on amazon in paperback and kindle format check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more answers to giant questions read the blog and catch us on the socials don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers we'll see you next time until then stay safe and god bless a lot of people are sort of you know networking and by networking they mean promoting their own stuff looking for a way to monetize it (laughs) and you in turn promoting them i guess if you're cross-pollinating yeah, well, you know, if they're going to give my stuff some exposure, I'm going to uh, probably give them a plug. But, you know, I don't do that for my own sake because, you know, I haven't done any of this to promote myself. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. It just seems to be the, the great American business model. You know, I guess that's how channels yeah. grow. It's like the algorithms on YouTube, you know, if you like in the video, that kind of video gets pushed towards you. Yeah. Potentially. Um, if you accidentally click like on something you don't like, then you'll be bothered with it for months. <laughs> yeah. So annoying. <sighs> How's your uh, your Darth Vader mask when you're sleeping? I, I have learned, I don't think you're supposed to do this, but I do it. Um, now, because it is fitted with a humidifier, you can, not saying that you should, not recommending vegetables in it. <laughs> <laughs> now you're giving me ideas. You, you can actually use it as a diffuser and put, um, a, you know, a, a drop of uh, essential oh. oil in there. Oh right, yeah, okay, nice. Right. Not, not that you should, uh, probably. I, I don't know, but um, but I do it, and you know, just a single drop in the in the water chamber. I actually feel better when I get up in the morning. It's great. Oh, nice. Wow, look at you. So, uh, nice. yeah, either I've. 
developed a revolutionary new therapy, you are um, going to die prematurely. Could be both things. Could be both things. There's always hope. <laughs> Hopefully not. Still got a lot of work to do.